1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Welcome to the second pilot episode of Cheerful Book Club. You're about to hear an interview that we did with Rennie Edo-Lodge, author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. We think it's a fascinating book and a fascinating conversation. So here it is. We're talking about Rennie's uh, book, which has done just tremendously
3: well, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which, I mean, the whole thing started as a blog post, and, and you, you write about this, and and what the blog post was, was sort of you... Encountering so much defensiveness and denial about white privilege that you as an individual just thought, I'm, I'm exhausted by this. I can't have these conversations anymore. And I was wondering how much the book has shifted that. Um, if you feel just the nature of that type of conversation has got better.
4: I do think that the the type of person who I would have felt I was banging my head against a brick wall to attempt to try and convince that structural racism is an issue generally accepts that it is now, you know, and I hope that the book has um, been a part of that for many of those people. So, you know, that blog post that I wrote was after my time in the feminist movement um, and I rushed into feminist activism at sort of like age 19 at university, you know, green eyed. Green-eyed? I'm trying to say naive, basically. Green, 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 yeah, yeah. not green-eyed, but anyway. Green, naive. Wide-eyed? Yes, Yes. wide-eyed, naive, excitable, and with this just general feeling that, like, all of the women in this movement who who I was meeting, they were going to be, you know, allies for life, and we all got each other, and um, the further I got into the movement, I realised that that wasn't the case, and that an understanding of racism was a real barrier, actually, to solidarity and understanding between each other. Um, and it was so disappointing, I think, to know white women in particular who were so sharp and analytical on gender inequality. But when you try to raise issues of race inequality um, with them or even question some of the priorities of the broader feminist movement, which seemed to be... Skewed towards the interests of white and middle class women. Um, when you tried to raise that, you were shut down and told that you were being divisive or, or a problem. And I think it was even more disappointing because, you know, as feminists who were also working inside a broader, like, progressive movement, like, you would get that same reaction from men when you, when you said, oh gosh, yeah, like, sexism is here or these, these, like, priorities and interests don't actually benefit women men would respond and be like, well, you're being divisive, you're being selfish, you're being this that, and the other. So it was so disappointing to see that reaction from white women.
3: How much of it do you think is is people not wanting to look at darkness and, and in themselves and say, I'm I think, think, thinking, I'm not one of the bad ones. It can't be me. It's the, it's the other people who are the bad ones.
4: Uh, I think that's certainly the case, you know, and as... I have been not just touring the book and speaking to readers, but also during my time as an activist, as a feminist activist, and an anti racism activist, like I've had those moments of confronting my own like obliviousness myself. So I can understand the feeling. Um, and I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing when you're confronted with obliviousness about like a systemic issue that. Never even affected you, so you didn't think about it. Like that's not necessarily the bad thing. It's about the bad thing is how you respond. How like, open you are. To the it. next step. Like, are you going to believe people when they say, "Oh, like this massive structural issue is affecting us uh, negatively, and perhaps you may be implicated in it." Like, do you believe people, or do you say? actually, no, this is all in your head and you're bullying me. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Or you're being destructive to the movement and stuff.
3: Something that crops up a lot in the writing around the book and the reviews of the book is there's, there's been a lot of this type of writing in the States, but less so in in Britain. And I've heard you talk in interviews as well that in this country we can think, oh, it's, you know, they've got the real problem over there in the United States. Where, where do you think that comes from?
4: Well... I know that in my own personal experience, which I don't speak about at length in the book, but I do mention in the book that I found it strange, actually, to look back on my own experience of education. You know, I went to school in South London and then North London, that every Black History Month, the reference points were African-American. So, like, the first like entry point of understanding what race inequality was and how racism affected people's lives was about African Americans. So that sets you up for, for thinking, okay, well, that's not really an issue here. But strangely, like anecdotally, you know, in your communities around you, particularly when I was in in Tottenham, because I moved to Tottenham when I was like six or seven, you'd hear people in the community speak about horrible injustices and Vicious treatment, but what's the word? It wasn't canonised. It wasn't part of the country's understanding of itself. And that was a lot of what that first chapter was in the book. Like essentially just the amount of people have come to me and said, we knew all of this stuff happened, but this is like the first mainstream, like representation of our lives during that period. Well, I was thinking about this, and
3: I don't know if it's the same for you, but you you mentioned Black History Month, and it crops up in the book as well. It it was founded in this country in the late 80s, I think. The late 80s, So so in all the history I learned in school, and I'm sure it was the same for you, Ed, I I don't remember learning any black British history at all. There might have been a little bit about the civil rights movement in the
2: States. I I totally agree, and I thought one of the really striking things I learned about in the book was the Bristol bus boycott i mean we talk about rosa parks in school mm. but nobody talks about the bristol bus boycott do they it's not like that's taught to people
4: well with the exception of perhaps your listeners who literally live in bristol because maybe you should say what happened
2: in the bristol <laughs> yeah birth.
4: so um i'm gonna try and make a long story short a man called Paul Stevenson um, essentially instigated a boycott against Bristol's buses in the late sixties because there was a color bar, <laughs> like
2: on him driving the buses. Yeah, he, he was—they refused to hire him as a driver because he was black. Well, basically. not him,
4: but uh, another. It was a young Jamaican man, right? So he orchestrated a, a boycott because and and sent somebody for a job interview just to test whether or not there was a color bar because lots of black people in the city had applied to work on the buses and nobody ever got the job. So I think like he and some other activists called up to ask for a job interview, gave a name and bus company was like, yeah, yeah, there's vacancies. And as soon as uh, the man turns up for the interview, they're like, oh, actually, sorry, no, it's (laughs) position's been filled. So that was their evidence. And they had
2: a successful campaign against this colour bar.
4: And they they got loads of people on board and all the students, obviously, but also I think like the Jamaican High Commissioner, (laughs) if I can remember correctly, although it's definitely more accurate in the book it's, it's been a while since i wrote it and the the book
3: in that chapter of the book there's there's a potted there's a sort of whistle stop tour through black history just i mean it gives an example there are so many of these stories i was wondering what it is like to be born in a country and not see yourself reflected in the history you're learning at school
4: confusing and frustrating i think you know so the time when I started to really learn about what it meant to be a black person who was born in Britain was when I was at university through a module that I had to choose to take, you know, Um, and there was less than 20 of us in the class. Um, My lecturer is always annoyed when I don't mention him. (laughs) Alan Rice, shout out Alan Rice. (laughs) He was the one who was teaching the module on the transatlantic slave trade um, at my alma mater. It just absolutely blew my mind. I was like, I mean, I hadn't thought that much about not knowing that history until I learned it. And then, you know, I went to uni in the Northwest. So we went to the uh, International Slavery Museum in Liverpool and my mind was blown.
2: I, I was sort of very moved by what you said to your mum when you were four. I'm wonder if you can, which is in the book. Yes. Because I think it's it paints such a picture of the sort of hidden racism which a child sort of imbibes.
4: Absolutely. Well you know, I was watching television and I was reading books and I was, was an avid reader. I was reading when I was like four. My mum loves to shout about that. Um And so I turned to her having consumed all of this or perhaps engaged with all of this culture and said, well, when am I going to turn white? Because that's clearly like, I mean, obviously I didn't phrase it like this, but there's those are representations of humanity around me and I'm a human being and I'm like everybody else. So that's clearly going to happen for me at some point, you know? And she had to let me know that, no, that that was not going to happen. And that was in
2: the mid-1990s when mm-hmm. you were four, correct?
4: Yeah.
3: yeah. So
2: quite recently from our point of view.
3: But everyone you were seeing on TV as a kid, even then you you felt like if you saw somebody who looked like you, they were a baddie or they were a sassy sidekick.
4: Yeah, but they weren't the centre of the story. They, yeah. weren't the, they weren't the person in the story from, from whom... Their eyes, like we saw the world, you know. Yeah. So it's not like there weren't any, but they were sidelined.
3: Did you see any positive representation? Is it, if you think back, are there examples that really stand out to
4: you? I remember being excited by So Solid Crew in two thousand and one. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I always talk about this. Well, not not often, but I uh, did a, a thing with the BBC recently where I was talking about it um, because it's like, wow, Black British people. On top of the pops, right. <laughs> you know, like that was exciting to me. Um, so, yeah, there were people here and there, you know, potted about perhaps the odd television kids TV presenter or something. I've reached to America a lot.
3: Yeah, and, and just white very much seemed like the the neutral or the, the default.
4: Yeah, there's a phrase from an African-American writer, a great whose name um, like escapes me, in which they say that, you know, you see yourself through the dominant culture's eyes. So, you know, you see yourself through that, that lens of difference. And
3: then you end up feeling like an extra or a side character then.
4: I don't know. I mean, when I think about how I felt during those times, I didn't feel particularly aggrieved, but I felt confused. Right. You know, I would, I felt confused. Um, you You
3: mentioned something that loomed very large as you were growing up was the Stephen Lawrence case. Can can you, Talk to me a little bit about that and the the part it played, you know, in in your childhood and and teens.
4: Well, um, you know, when he was murdered, uh, I was essentially a toddler living around the same area of London. And so and when two of the killers were convicted, I was in my early 20s. So in terms of like reporting on that case, it spanned a lot of like the formative years of my life the bit that affected me the most was in 2012 when two of those killers were convicted. And it felt to me like a release, you know, like a, like very overdue justice was being done. And then what was, and this is when I was aggrieved, I was incensed, like raging at the fact that post the conviction of two of those killers, the, sort of like news discussion shifted from that to Diane Abbott's racist against white people.
3: Can you remind people what what, what (laughs) So the
4: journey was, um, there was lots of discussion about that. People were were tweeting, this was the early days of Twitter. And um, there was a discussion about the writer Bim Adawumni said, I do wish everyone would stop saying the black community though diane abbott tweeted back to her she said white people love playing divide and rule we should not play their game hashtag tactics as old as colonialism i'm going to read from the book now at this point all hell broke loose the news agenda swiftly changed no longer were the newspaper editorials radio packages and tv news people discussing stephen lawrence the nuances of institutional racism or the realities and fears of growing up black in the uk now the news story was about racism against white people Racism goes both ways, Abbott's distractors insisted. Writing in the Daily Telegraph, journalist Toby Young wrote, Imagine the uproar if an equally prominent white conservative MP said something similar about black people on Twitter. Even Diane's Labour Party allies were defending her, couldn't help but describe her tone as robust and combative, as if their problem was with the tone of her tweet rather than the injustice it was confronting. And while Britain's white conservatives were insisting that this was reverse racism that was as unforgivable as murdering an unarmed black teenager, Britain's white liberals were terribly concerned that Abbott's harsh phrasing might undo all of her hard work, insisting that adding the word some to her tweet might have softened the impact of it.
3: So so the murder murder of a black boy, which had taken, getting on for decades to secure a conviction all of a sudden, became about the w- whether the language a, a black mp was using was appropriate
4: yeah i was incensed by that and at the time i was a, a student union leader and i was sat at my desk and i couldn't concentrate i was just fuming and because i think that the conviction of those two two men who had been walking free just chilling like for 20 years was so long overdue, and I really thought that it was going to provoke a conversation that I felt the country desperately needed. Do you remember anything about that at the time, Ed?
2: About the Diane, thing. yeah.
3: Cause you would have been leader at the time,
2: yeah. And I think I, pl- I sort of should confess, I think I played some role in Diane mm, making some apology for the remarks. Oh,
4: yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do you want to elaborate? <laughs> uh,
2: I suppose reading your book and sort of then rereading the context of the tweet, you know, you could you sort of. Uh, it gives a different. It gives a different perspective. I think the problem at the time was it seemed to be stereotyping sort of white people in general. But but look, I, I sort of understand the point that you're making that the, you know it's a sort of you've got to understand the context in which she was saying it and the context of the situation.
4: Yeah, but I think also in terms of uh, let's say what's worse or like what's perhaps even more newsworthy. <laughs> um, it felt very terrible that. Suddenly, her tweet took up a lot of space and media attention. Um, when actually, in my opinion, something monumental had happened, and in comparison, her tweet wasn't monumental. Would I have tweeted it if I was an MP? Probably not. I, w- I would have said it around the pub table, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, but I didn't. I think in comparison to sure. the, the conviction of those of those murderers, it was it it was literally. But not I'm,
2: important. <laughs> I mean I'm trying to think about what we what we learned about the not so much about her tweet, but from the You see you see, I think the context for people thinking about the conviction was good thing too. But but it, it sort of it, it kind of reminds me of what you said it makes me think of what you said earlier, which is I guess the, the thing the, the perspective that your book gives is when McPherson finds institutional racism in the police it's almost like I mean it's a good thing that McPherson happened obviously but it's almost like it then confines it to the police <laughs> and I, I suppose what struck me earlier on is the gap between people thinking well institutional racism is something that happens over there not over here do you know what I mean so it's almost like it's almost like the Stephen Lawrence thing was it was sort of uncontroversial that it was good they were convicted, the police had been racist and all that, or relatively uncontroversial. But I suppose what you're saying is it should have provoked a broader discussion about not just sort of racism in the police, but racism everywhere.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
3: I want to move on to something you talk about because so I, I I do think you know people will grasp the idea of white privilege, but what you do in the book so well is is spell out how that can affect a life, and you um, you give a, a, an example of a black boy going through life. Um, I wondered if you could t- t- talk us through some of the obstacles that are faced that maybe people wouldn't sort of automatically be aware of.
4: Okay, so that part of the book where, you know, I come up with the idea of a hypothetical black boy, it was informed actually by my time working at the Running Me Trust because, you know, you're working at a race equality think tank, you're exposed to all this data all the time coming out from all sorts of different organisations that speaks to just drastic inequalities along race racial lines in institutions that we expect to treat us fairly. And, and you follow
3: it from from sort of cradle to grave. Really. I do
4: indeed, yeah. And some of that data is going to be old now. You know, some of it was old when I was writing the book, and I'm sure some of it's been refreshed at this point. So, if there's ever a new edition of the book, I'll go off and do some updating. Um, but but you know what I I found you know when compiling this data was that you know in 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 the school system so something that really stuck out to me and i can't remember the date of of this report but it was the in year 6 so you know when the kids are doing their sats age 11 um, black children were routinely undermarked by their own teachers and that was something that was um remedied by anonymous marking
3: so when the papers are then sent off mm-hmm. and and the, the people are divorced from knowing who the students are the marks would go up but their own teachers people yeah. there with day in day out would Sort of mark, mark them down
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um I found in in university um you know the the attainment gaps wide widely known now um that black students in particular were far less likely to get you know the highest marks in university compared to their white counterparts and for me I think one of the more galling things because you know for a very long time before I was a jobbing journalist I was a job seeker and I was never successful at it was uh so that the department of work for work and pensions 2009 they did this big survey and like i say it's old it's 10 years ago now but i don't i don't think anything's been done at the same scale um you know they sent 2000 cvs out to uh you know jobs in the public and private sector some with british sounding names like white british sounding names some with african and asian sounding names um and but the cvs had similar qualifications and experience so they sent them out got got them back you know acceptances, rejections, and they found that if you had an African and Asian sounding name, you were far less likely to be called into a job interview than somebody with a white British sounding name, despite the similar qualifications and experience. So, you know, what I tried to do with some of that data was really be like, wow, disadvantage in schooling, (laughs) like disadvantage in higher education, disadvantage when you're trying to apply for a job. And then later in the book, I speak about, I think, some research from the Trades Unions Congress that shows like literal... Pay inequality between white people white British people and people who are not white yet British, despite the higher qualifications and for me I think the the point that I was trying to make when I tried to when I was pulling that data together was that I actually don 't think the teachers who are under who are undermarking black children like i don't think that they're Fully made, like paid up members of the BNP or you know, whatever the far right party is today. I don't think that they think themselves are, as racist. I don't think that the people who are um, going through CVs, uh, you know, in HR and the private and public sector, they're not saying I'm racist and proud. Yet the, the bias
3: yeah. persists, right? I mean, most people, I think. You know, uh, at the level of conversation, you know, the, just the anti, the simple anti-racist argument has been one. Most people aren't walking around thinking of themselves as racist, but uh, as white people are carrying white privilege. So how, how do you start to fix that? Is it at an individual level by hearing stories in the way we do in your book and hearing about your experience? Or does it need to be something that is done top down as, as a society, society or some combination of both?
4: I think... I think that the solutions come from all places. So, obviously, as an author and as somebody who's active in the cultural sphere, I'm very, very into changing hearts and minds. And, you know, in my opinion, top-down approaches, which you know, I think are, are like objectively good, can provoke resentment in people who don't understand why they're happening in the first place. And so, I think my job as a as an author is to Win hearts and minds, so that when that top-down uh, work, like, for example, positive discrimination happens, people are like, well, I'm on board with that because I understand the point of it, you know?
3: Because it's something you, you've you come around, as a teenager, it was something that that you were unconvinced of and it's something you've come a, come around to as you yeah. got
4: older. I mean, but when I was a teenager, like, I take into account my background, you know, I, I grew up in Tottenham. I went to school in Haringey, like I lived a super, you know, super multicultural, like mixed communities areas of, of, of Britain. So the idea and and pretty working class as well, like I wasn't exposed to people like much more advantaged than me until I started to try and like graduate and get out into the job market. So I didn't actually understand what the problem looked like. So, you know, when, um, you know, and I write about this in the book, when um, my mum suggested that I apply for a positive action scheme at a, at a newspaper, I was shocked. I was like, but but why should I like, this is special treatment. That's until I got to the offices and I was like, oh, oh okay. This is not like the environment that I'm going to school in or the, the streets that I'm walking in Tottenham. This is a very different environment indeed. And I realised, what the point of it was?
3: There's some, just to come back to something you mentioned there, you you write uh, later in the book about intersectionality and and gender and and class. How how do you think that sort of plays into this wider conversation?
4: I think that I tried my absolute hardest in the book to really demonstrate how. So, for example, when we're talking about racism, well, the majority of black people in this country are working class so it's not it's not just as you know a isolated conversation to wealth inequality. <laughs> Do you know what I mean like when I think about who um comes to my house to deliver me uber eats or who's picking me up in an uber or or delivering me food in on delivery or a pizza or something like it's the kind it's it's people who like i lived around where i was living in tottenham and to some extent where, where i live now so and those issues of things like you know the gig economy and you know zero hour contracts to me that seems very much tied into like Broader issues to do with like wealth inequality, racism, you know, precarious work, all of that stuff. And I feel I tried my hardest in the book to demonstrate that, but I think in the broader public conversation, these things aren't always linked together. Um, and what I'm talking about there is intersectionality, right? So I, it's to me, it's not sufficient to talk about class over there and race over there. Um, and I think that. Sometimes the dividing of these issues are um, is what's allowed a, a sort of like pernicious narrative of the white working class um, that really like pits people who really don't have much yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. first place against each other.
2: You see, I think maybe the issue about sort of white privilege is that there are lots of white people who feel very unprivileged. <laughs> you you know what I mean? Some people might say I'm not saying whether I agree with this or not. I'm not sure that. I think the book is incredibly compelling. So this is sort of not to not to in any way diminish that I think maybe there's an issue about talking about white people in general, without sort of narrating that there's like white people who are like, you know, super rich and doing incredibly well and benefiting from great things. And then there are white people who are like really got massive barriers them themselves which is where the
3: intersectionality yes, comes in. Yeah. then that's that's a separate thing to some of the other stuff you write about about just sort of walking around and and feeling other
2: or yes, being other. Yes. It's, it's, it's yes.
4: Well, you know, those those white people who had nothing I grew up next yes. door to them like yeah, or in yeah. the council flat that I, you know, I yeah. spent like the first 6 years of my life in like yeah. I grew up next door to them and f- felt a strong affinity yeah. until the far right came in and said to People like, you know, I can remember I, when I was a, like six years old, my best friend was this little white boy called Callum and we went around everywhere in South London. And the far right came in and they told people like Callum and his mum that they had more of a right to the resources of this country yeah. than yeah. me and my mum yeah. because they were white. Or
2: worse, <laughs> that their problems were being caused by people like you and your, you know what I mean? Indeed, I mean, that's yeah. Sort of... And
4: we were both two kids with single yeah. mums, you know, growing up in South London. So for me, it, I actually don't think that the, that the work that I'm doing is trying to negate like no, the no. hardship that he and his mum no. were dealing with, but rather to illuminate that. And objectively, like I don't know how Callum's doing now, but me personally, I'm doing well. Like my book's yeah. done well. Like, I've, I've moved class. Like, I'm, I'm living a comfortable life. Um, and that's something that I continue to, like, attempt to recognise. And I don't wish to advance a narrative of I'm struggling simply because I'm black. Like, yes, everyday racism still happens to me. Um, but frankly, like, I'm fine. <laughs> um,
3: There's a really good interview in, in the book. One of the bits that stood out for me was an interview with a mixed race girl yeah, which which kind yeah. of um speaks to I this agree. i think
4: doesn't yeah it? yeah but uh, i mean what what i was saying is white privilege is a, an advantage it it doesn't negate like class discrimination it doesn't negate uh gender discrimination but rather it's uh the gross racial disparities and things like you know that dwp like study that i i speak of um means that there are still some discriminations and stereotypes that are putting barriers in the face of people who, frankly, don't deserve it for largely arbitrary reasons that have everything to do with a sense of like of systemic racism. And that's, and that's not me saying that um, white people who are working class don't deal with class discrimination.
2: You deal with it's a bit in the book, and maybe it's a sort of slightly stupid question, but what do you think white people should be doing
4: um, well, I think that, and like I say, it's been two years since the book came out. So I've had a lot of time to reflect and something that I have a conclusion that I've drawn is that the book is like, it's an analysis and it, it exists to be applied, right? Like for me, anti-racism is something that needs to be applied in whatever Sphere or off field that you're in. So, just like a an analysis of like gender discrimination, like once you have the tools to make it, then you can start to see in your own life, in your own spheres of influence. Oh, I, I see what that is, and I think that I can change that situation. You know, how I don't wish to say, but really, what I wanted the book to to do, and you know, I even say towards the end of the preface, I hope you use this as a tool was to essentially provide people with the tools to make the that analysis. It's so strange because in writing and, you know, I think you can tell I'm a writer. I love to write alone. And I didn't really think that I was going to be speaking for anybody or on behalf of anyone. And, you know, that's why I've never been great. When I was in student politics and people were sort of pushing me to, Actually, going to actual politics, I was like, "No, thank you. I just need to be like speaking on behalf of myself." So
2: you made a wise choice. I'd <laughs> say, based
4: <in the laughs> of my experience, it's been really mind blowing to me if, when people come up to me and they say, "You've spoken for me," you know, "I feel heard by your your work." I didn't anticipate that, and it's happened in in Britain and outside of Britain, and so that's something that um, consistently, I suppose, shocks me. For me, I think the the more distance I have from the book, the more I can think about that sense of just feeling so unheard. Like I felt so unheard, so frustrated. Every time I turned on the news and I was like, this is not the right angle. Like you're missing something. You're missing something. I felt like that all the time. That sense of urgency, I think, you know, found its way into the book. And I, and I, I hear from readers, they have caught that urgency. And I'm like, oh, sorry. I didn't realize it was that contagious, right? <laughs> um, So that, you know, that really blows my mind. What's next? What's next? Is it secret? Well, I haven't signed on the dotted line for whatever's next. I'm thinking about things. (laughs) I'm thinking about things. I'm doing a lot of reading. And um, I've also been touring the book a lot because it's out in about five or six languages. A lot in Europe. Uh, I've been blown away by the. People who've reached out to me from around the world and said, "This same power structure, this same system of domination, is um, is prevalent in my country," and that's made me feel that's given me a sense of perspective. It's made me feel a sense of affinity and, um, I suppose, a shared experience with people who are navigating the, uh, similar structures because colonialism, you know, really was a global project. I've just done so much learning since the book came out and I feel I'm a better person for it. It's made me the sense of perspective it's given me has been incredible and I think whatever comes next whether that be a book I suppose if people want a book from me, um it's going to be informed by that. I've also sort of come away with a sense of solidified understanding of of the point of this book and and I think everybody who's read that opening blog post can feel the sense of despair and pessimism <laughs> that that was in it and a sense of essentially just giving up. <laughs> you know, I really did give up. And the shift that I think that the book has made in a lot of people's minds really does confirm to me that what I was talking about in that book is an ideology, much like Noam Chomsky like, talks about capitalism and he speaks about the ideology and he wants you to see what, what it looks like. And reading some of his work made me... Th- think oh god okay i never really thought about it like that readers who've come back to me and said that they now see what that ideology looks like and how it's harming people like it just confirms to me that that it's learned and it can be unlearned that's been a sort of like profound and largely positive learning experience as well so whatever comes next is going to be informed by the all of the learning that I've done in the last couple of years.
3: Well, I was I was going to finish by asking you to give us something to be cheerful about, but I think you've just just kind of done that Yeah, by I'm, describing your experience.
4: I think it's really important because, you know, we're in a time now where people are pointing out social injustice here, there and everywhere, and we're all pretty angry and annoyed and upset about it for obvious reasons. Um, but I kind of feel like we can go either one or two ways. We can be... Like, well, it's just innate. <laughs> and we like take a route that some people who fancy themselves as sociobiologists. So, oh, this is just how people are. This is just it. Or we can be like, actually, it can be shifted. You know, like for me, the question is now, what do we do with this acknowledgement? Ultimately, um, I really do not want to be dealing with the same, the same types of frustrations that I had in 50 years time. If, if the if the Earth is still here, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other depressing conversationism. Uh,
3: Rennie, thank you so much. It's been a, it's a real, real pleasure to talk to you.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks a lot. <laughs>
3: Our thanks to Renny Edo-Lodge, and we would love to hear from you. Uh, what do you think of Cheerful Book Club? What could we be doing more of? What would you like to hear us include when we launch it into a podcast proper? You can email us, bookclub at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com stroke Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast, or find us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast.